Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with Nikisha Glover. Nikisha, how are you doing? I am doing good today. That sounded like we were just joking around and then it was like a little pause, but I think you're like a little happier than that. Oh, <laughs> you say you think I'm um, happier than uh, joking and laughing. Good. And then you pause and you're like, I'm good. Yeah, you're right. I did say that because that question can be hard to answer sometimes. Like, how am I? Is that for the purpose of like some people would say pleasantries? It's easy to say I'm good. But under that I'm good, like we're all dealing with so much. And it's like I can open up and share all the other aspects, but then I don't know if this is where that conversation is going. So I think for me, my fallback, I recognize that I am blessed. I recognize that today I am safe. Today I have peace. Like I recognize all of those things, but it doesn't mean that everything is great and good and golden. So I can present to you today that I'm doing good. But I think that pause was in thinking like, well, where, where am I good? There's some aspects of my life that I'm doing really good. And then there's some aspects that life is lifing. As I told somebody recently, life is doing its thing. I think you just set the tone that we're going to have an open and honest and not pat answer, not cliche stuff. And uh, I'm going to pause that and read your bio for people who don't know about you. So Nikisha Glover is a climate justice practitioner, thought leader, tech advocate, and community engagement expert. She actively develops strategies across activism, films, music, and podcasts to help engage and activate millennials, Gen Z, artists, entertainers, community leaders, entrepreneurs, politicians, and other climate experts. She's built a local to national track record as a community organizer with years of experience in corporate, community, and service-based roles. These include the Soul Nation founder, which I want to hear about, where she advocates for real solutions on behalf of the communities whom, whom she serves, Girls Who Code as a regional partnership coordinator, where she closes gender and diversity gaps in technology, and as a Think 100% organizer for Hip Hop Caucus, where she highlights solutions to climate change and environmental injustices to help make the Think 100% the coolest place in the climate movement. Well, now I want to cover a lot of these different things and pick up where we just were. And I think... I'd like to ask about a lot of your work because I've listened to a bunch of your appearances on, on summits and podcasts. And I, I hear a lot of passion around organizing, around voting, but I'm also, I want to go back before that. You, oh, oh, this isn't in, in the bio, but I know that you had a passion to become a crime scene investigator, something like that. Okay. Oh my gosh, you have um, been listening. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That was definitely an interest at one point in my life. It was actually between being a forensic scientist or being a pharmaceutical, being in pharmaceuticals in general. And the interest for forensics came from, oh, and being a lawyer was in there too. But I quickly, like I had an experience where they called it Explorers was the name of the opportunity. I did it in high school and you got to basically be a day in the life of a lawyer and they came out like this is the worst introduction to being a lawyer possible I think they came out with a, a, a stack of papers that was huge like it probably had to be 500 pages in there and I'm like 
you're going to have to read this amount of material to prepare for cases. Mm -hmm. And it's, I like reading, but I don't want somebody's life to depend on whether or not I've read 500 pages. Um, So like that quickly went away. So the interest for being a lawyer was the show, The Practice. If anybody's out there listening and remembers that show, The Practice, it was one of my favorite shows of all time. And then in that era, there was also a show called The First CSI, the very first one. And that really sparked my interest. And then being in high school, I was good in the sciences in general, like biology was something that I really gravitated to and did well in school. But then I learned when I got to college, I was actually better in chemistry um, than I was in biology. But either way, I really loved, absolutely loved being in the lab. And I thought life would have me on the trajectory to continue working in a lab, being in a crime lab, and life just didn't turn out that way for me. Because if I look at your presence online, It seems more, I would guess, more hip hop, and I would guess you came from the arts, but I I think you come from a more science background, or is it a mix of both? Is it, how do you think of yourself primarily? So I would say I was born into hip hop in the sense of that is the culture that was um, what I was immersed in and growing up. So it is sort of the water to the seed of who I am as a person. Like it's part of the pickup, it's part of the watering of the seed as who I am. Like inside the seed though, I would say is this person who really has that scientific background and understanding and leaning and interest. But my seed I've learned over the years, like it's just made up of so many other interests. And so I am a scientist, I guess you could say, that was born in hip hop culture. And one of the things that like from uh, hip hop and specifically hip hop caucus perspective, when we talk about hip hop, we talk about it by definition also, hip meaning current, And hop meaning to move and caucus meaning to do it together. And so when you think about the hip and hip hop being current, I I am definitely very present in in myself and aware of the things that are around me and the community that, that I exist in and that I'm a part of. And I think of the hop being the the movement, the action, the desire to make a meaningful impact through my actions, all of that comes together. So I, although I have a science background, that's one dimension of who I am. Did you know, how did you decide to go into what you do? Did you see a big gap and thought, I'm going to fill that gap? Or did you meet someone or, because you're doing fair, I read you as fairly entrepreneurial. You're not working for some big corporation. And that tells me there was a lot of initiative, which, and tell me if I'm wrong, but that tells me that you had to follow a passion or have find internal motivation. Yeah. So you have definitely picked up on a few things, but I wish it was that easy. I wish it was that easy that I just, Decided that I'm going to be this climate justice practitioner, but getting to that naming of it, like it's an evolution. Like I have evolved in this. I mentioned to you, the evolution really does start um, from that high schooler that thought she was going to be a, a, a 
of forensic scientists and being the crime lab to now operating in a space of a climate justice practitioner and then understanding that every interest that I have, every experience that I have had, it can all fit into this umbrella of climate justice. And for me, that has been, I don't know, the word right now that comes to mind has been the glue to have this language and this understanding of what climate justice is. So my background after graduating college, I wound up working for, I wound up uh, working for Red Cross testing blood for disease, wound up testing the blood for disease. So I did make it to the lab. Mm -hmm. I just didn't last in the lab very long after that because I was looking for something different to your point earlier. Like I knew that there was something more. I landed in insurance for a number of years. So it might sound very interesting to have this um, sort of mixing pot of all these different experiences And it may seem very much all over the place and all these different pathways, but what I have been able to experience is the understanding that all these things are connected, everything that I've done. And then even to the listener, everything that you are doing, even for you, Joshua, everything that you have done is all connected and being able to have the language is important to understand how you can speak to how it's all connected. So for me, after having been in insurance for a number of years and my job came to an end. And at that time, this was also a time at which Steve Jobs had passed away, just side note, because that was something that gave me like uh, a sense of, well, let me tell the story first. Okay. So... In my job coming to end, I sat down and I was really intentional about thinking, what is it that I want to do next? How, how can, to your point, how can I be of service? How can I, um, as a person of faith, how can God use me for the, the next chapter that will be my life? After like thinking on it, praying on it, all the different things, I landed back in insurance for a period of time, Right. But I think landing back in insurance, I landed back with a new lens of being open, like being open and think, thinking about opportunities that like whatever the right opportunity is. During that time before getting back into insurance, like I mentioned, Steve Jobs passed away um, and I caught an episode of something. I think it was 2020. For the life of me, I cannot find this episode. But what I remember in and watching how they do the specials when there's been someone impactful to society that has passed away. One of his comments was that he wanted to make an impact on the way that we watch TV, the way we use our phones, the way that we use our computers, right? Mm -hmm. So it was like four different things that he wanted to make an impact on. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, huh, what do I want to make an impact on? So I got a piece of paper, I wrote, I drew a line vertically down the paper and horizontally down the paper. And inside of that box, I started thinking about what are the the things that I want to fill this box with and what that has manifest because it's been several versions of it to come. But what I can tell you today, what that box represents for me is that 
I'm one, able to make a meaningful impact. Number two, it's flexible. Number three, out of a cubicle, like no more cubicle life. I'm out of a cubicle. I am out in the community and able to connect with people. And then number four being to amplify the good. And I love amplifying good stuff. Everything that I'm attached to, I 100% believe in. I'm able to do the things and support the work that is really good work. And, And in my heart, I believe we are making a meaningful impact. And so those have now become like my guiding light for all the things that I do and all the things that I attach myself to. And so there's nothing that I'm doing that you won't see that we're able to make that meaningful impact, that it's not flexible, that I'm not connecting with community and connecting with people. And then that it's not amplifying an opportunity to amplify good stuff or goodness. So That's like where I'm at today, but taking it back a little bit back in time and having got back into insurance, I actually ran into someone that was new into town that was saying how he was doing, how he was opening up an office for people to do field organizing work. I had never heard of that. I had never heard of that at that time because remember I'm coming from insurance background and the science background. Never heard of being a field organizer. And he invited me to the office. And before coming to the office, when we were talking about it, everything that he was talking about sounded very much like volunteering work. Mm -hmm. It didn't sound like a career path. It did not sound like an opportunity. It, It just did not sound like anything that I know it to be today. And so I went there and I was like, okay, this is interesting. And I think we were making phone calls. That particular organization was focused on raising environmental awareness in what they call minority communities. It was my foot in the door to understanding the environmental movement more broadly. Getting there, I would say, and and I wound up taking the job offer Mm -hmm. and leaving insurance at the time. And it was eye-opening to understand how big and broad the environmental movement was. However, I like over time, what I began to realize that there was something missing. It was a very extractive work experience, I think, in the sense of we were consistently asking volunteers to meet certain metrics for the organization, but the opportunity, excuse me, but the opportunity to really build with the community, really provide resources to the community. It just felt like there was a a missing gap. Like at the time, I can remember some of the petitions we would ask people to sign, the carbon standards petition. And Mm -hmm. as I say that, I don't know if people like really know, like that's not kitchen table conversation. That is not a conversation that's happening broadly across hip hop culture when we talk about carbon standards although it impacts everyone is is just not the kind of conversation that was happening at the time and then what was hard is you're getting folks to sign your petition 
for things that are not front facing to them as far as they're making decisions on whether or not they're purchasing their medication or paying their electricity bill, or they're making decisions about how to get healthy food, how to raise children in the public uh, school systems, like all these other issues or police brutality, like all of these issues were front and center for the community that we said we wanted to reach. However, we weren't speaking in a language that resonated with the community. And so at that point was a very pivotal point for me because I was looking for something different. Like I could tell you, like I was one foot out of the environmental movement because The environmental movement didn't seem to connect and care about people that were being impacted by these issues in the same way and filling these needs. So I thought I was going to navigate more into um, social justice work and finding like other opportunities outside of the environmental work. And I had someone who now I consider a friend and a mentor. I was out on my former campus and I was tabling and doing the whole getting people information about at that particular time it was offshore oil drilling how do we get that to not be a thing for North Carolina and someone um, came up to my table and he was like I've been looking for you you've been looking for me <laughs> I'm like okay and then I listened to what he had to say and ultimately he I'm, I'm a black woman And I'm talking about offshore oil drilling. That's just not something that people run into every day. And so I think that formed the connection for him for the conference that he was building in D.C. And he actually invited me to be a speaker on that panel. And I know this is a long story, but it's a very pivotal story in the trajectory of who I am and where I'm working at today. So he invited me to be on this panel. First off, I I had never sat on a panel in that way before. So you want me? Are you sure? And he was like, no, yes, you are needed. And it's in D.C., I had every reason not to go. It was Mother's Day weekend. I was a mother of, I think my son might have been one or two at the time. And it was first Sunday um, in my church. That's communion Sunday. My mom is a deaconess. And someone's like, you shouldn't go. Like all the reasons not to go. But there was just something in me that it it just felt very divine, I guess you could say, very divine. Like, I have to go, I have to see. And I didn't know this man, but we talked and I got to know him over a couple of weeks prior to this particular conference he was putting on. And I was like, I've been to DC. I like visiting DC. I'm gonna go. And I got a friend in DC that I can connect with if I needed to. And so by the end of it, I was committed. Like I was just one way and my mom eventually got in the car with me. Like, even, <laughs> like it's crazy. Cause my mom went to, you shouldn't go. You're not going like all these different things. You've got your son to think about it's mother's day weekend to her being the passenger in my car up to DC for this conference. And when I tell you like this conference was so transformational for me, 
Many um, people who I now consider friends and mentors are were at that conference. I remember telling a couple of folks who lived in Charlotte, wow, we had to go all the way to D.C. to connect with each other, and we're right here at home together. So let me tell you what was transformational about that particular conference. It had nothing to do with me being on the panel. Like, being on the panel was great. It was dynamic. It was a first-time experience. It was definitely about the people and the experience that I got to be a part and to realize wow, there's so many other people and backgrounds that I connect with that are talking about the environment in this way. And I got the language that I needed from that conference. So at that conference, and I think it was Reverend Yearwood that said this, and it was the connection between the environmental movement and the social justice movement. And getting that understanding and that framing and that definition for climate. And that, that conference led to other conversations where I, I would get the language and the framework of understanding that climate by definition is the condition of, that's why we can talk about the political climate or the climate of our schools. We've all used that language before, but we haven't thought about it in its deep connection to a changing climate. So I have language now to talk about how the environmental movement and the social justice movement both need each other. People are dying at the hands of all these social justice ills from from police brutality and poverty. And if they're not dying, they're suffering from digital divides. They're suffering from food apartheid. They're suffering from all these different things at the hands of social justice issues. And conversely, people are dying at the hands of environmental issues, a changing climate, hotter temperatures, wildfires, flood, all these weather-related and unnatural disasters that are happening. And so we could fix all the issues that are happening with our social social justice threats. We could fix them all. We could solve them all today. And people would still be dying at the hands of environmental threats. Conversely, we could solve all these environmental threats and have clean water and have clean air. And we could um, solve all the, 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 the environmental threats that exist. There, the, the climate is um, no longer changing. All those things could be solved, but people would still be dying at the hands of social ills of our world. And so the language and the understanding and why I say that name of climate justice practitioner is so important to me, because it gives me the understanding of how the environmental movement and the social justice movement both need each other. It gives me the language to talk about how Nikisha who was an insurance agent, how the world of insurance connects to our conversation about a changing climate. And so that for me is like that long, wavy, curvy path that has put me on the path to being a climate justice practitioner. And I don't think that, and using the term practitioner, because that's new for me, that's within the last year, because I used to say climate justice organizer. Some people would name me as an activist And what I find that resonates the most with me at this moment is practitioner and being able to take the things that I'm learning and experiencing and applying them and sharing them and connecting with people and helping them find their pathways as well. 
I'm hearing, well, there's a lot. And uh, there was a couple of things that I was listening for and I didn't hear, but maybe they were there. The, the big picture I hear is, is you tried a few things here and there and you did what was around you, but then through chance, there's something that struck a deep chord and enabled you, gave you the language to speak and about things that were important to you. And what I hear you doing now is trying to bring to others what someone brought to you, if I read you right, that mm-hmm. more people would care about these things, environmental issues, for example, if the, it's not even, if, I think I, it's not that the information isn't there, it's just not relevant. And it's not said in a language that makes sense. And you couldn't, if you, if you did care about it before, you couldn't speak about it in a way that was meaningful. And the conference and the guy who brought you there, who was not Reverend Yearwood, I take it, someone no. else, but that he and that, and that organization or that experience gave you the ability to do that. And now you're off to the races. It's how could we not care about these things? Because I hear a lot of people saying offshore oil drilling, that's abstract to someone who doesn't know if, they can, if they're going to get evicted. And if you don't make it relevant to them, or it's not relevant to them, that's what I get told. But you're saying you found it not only is relevant, it's impassionating. What's the word? It makes you impassioned. Something I, I was listening for, and maybe it was there, but I didn't hear it, is um, hearing just how serious the situation is. That for me was like, oh, this is not just, oh, maybe it'll be warmer out for a little while. People, like huge numbers of people are going to die if we don't act. And if we do act, that, that won't happen, but it, or might, it, it'll mitigate it to some degree. But the scale of it and the immediacy of it, because for generations, people could say later generations will figure this out. And now someday their backs will be to the wall and they'll figure it out. Well, we're the ones with the backs to the wall, but a lot of people still feel like, oh, so later, the next generation, they'll figure it out. Oh, it kills me when I hear an old person. I'm 50. So someone like me, someone my age saying, oh, I'm so glad that the next generation is figuring things out. I'm like, you're abdicating responsibility. And you're acting like doing acting is a burden. Mm -hmm. So did you also have an experience like that about learning more of the immediacy and the scale? Or was that something that you might be looking at a different way of how it affects? Because a lot of stuff I was watching is talking about how I was um, a lot of the summits you had that you were on. So I'll link to a bunch of videos that show long summits that you were in. And it would go to a neighborhood and say, look, here's a refinery in our neighborhood. Here is a something various polluting things that get stuck in our neighborhoods, and so even if you, even if offshore oil drilling is remote and distant, which I don't think it is to anyone, but as a part of general pollution, I have a lot of litter in my neighborhood, but I don't have a refinery in my neighborhood. So was there that element of discovery also? Yeah, so it's interesting that you speak on the the future generations piece and what that looks like. And who's saying that? Typically, the people that I would run into that, that would say that, they didn't look like me. They were white. They were older. They may even be retired. And they would talk about um, why they would care about climate and doing this work because they they care about it for their grandchildren and their future generations. Well, the reality is that the immediacy has never left Black, Indigenous, 
and people of color communities. Like the reality is a daily lived experience that I can't afford to wait and do this work for my grandchildren or future generations because I'm being impacted right now by pollution, by poverty, by the policy decisions that are being made. And I can't get my head out from up under water and the weight of it. So in the sense of Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities, they have not been afforded the opportunity to think about how this is impacting, delaying the immediacy of the work. They have not been afforded the opportunity to think about delaying the immediacy of the work. Right now, it is a sink or swim lived experience for most. All right, so I'm going to start from like the part where I was talking about my appreciation for you bringing up the future generations. I really appreciate you framing that piece about the future generations because I've been in a lot of spaces myself, especially early on in my organizing journey, where there were people that did not look like me that could afford to say, I'm here and I care about the climate for my grandchildren and for future generations. Whereas Black communities and Indigenous communities and people of color communities are not afforded the opportunity to care about a change in climate somewhere down later in the future. They are feeling the impacts of it right now today. And so while for Black communities, We might not be saying climate change, but we are speaking to the symptoms that we're experiencing every day, whether it's the the pollution that is flooding our communities and our family members are dealing with respiratory issues and cancers and things that are just not natural. The over um, the exacerbated threats of hurricanes and floods and how they compound the issues that our communities are already dealing with. So it's not necessarily, like you said, engagement point or lack of concern about it. It's really their concern is coming from a place of dealing with the symptoms. So while there are other communities and the communities that are speaking to it from a perspective of it's for my grandchildren and it's for my future generations. They can afford to say that in a way and in the language of facts and figures and climate because they may not be experiencing the symptoms of the change in climate right now with immediacy. Now, there's an awkwardness in talking about, when I talk about environmental issues, I often get, so. uh, people often say that you don't understand what it's like for other people. And I don't know anyone who, everyone only has their own personal experience. They don't know other people's, I mean, you have to empathize. And so it becomes really, I think, tell me if it's different for you. It's awkward for me to talk about, even between you and me right here, right now. I mean, we've emailed a bunch. It's the first time we're talking. We don't know each other that well. We're being recorded. So you're black, I'm white. You're a woman, I'm man. And there's things that we might take for granted. If I'm talking to another white man, I can speak without worrying, like, how's he going to interpret? Well, I mean, to some extent, I have to, everyone interprets things differently. And 
is that also the case for you? It, it, you have to be guarded or be careful about what you say, cross, talking across communities. And I don't want to s- separate communities too much. See, I'm doing it now. I have to be careful of, of like, did I imply that we're not in the same community when maybe we are? Or am I saying that we're not when we... And there's a lot of division, not people wanting to be divided, I don't think. I'm watching a lot of the videos and there were a lot of times when people would say, we black and brown indigenous people of color have this situation and they are causing it. And I'm like, I'm not black, I'm not brown, I'm not, I don't think I would call myself indigenous or a person of color. So am I the, one of the they? And I'm thinking, I don't think they're trying to say that about me. And I don't think I should take it personally, but I don't feel I can join this community, but I think we'd like to work together. And is there an awkwardness that has to be overcome? I like to think of that in the framing of what and you spoke about me being a founder of soul nation mm-hmm. so with my work at soul nation which i think carries through all my work as a climate justice practitioner overall our framing is around closing the green gap and i'd like to just take a moment to speak on that because i think it gets to what you're asking green gap is the difference between black indigenous and people of color communities desire to build and live in sustainable regenerative communities and their actual access to the resources power education and infrastructure to achieve those communities so when you hear a we or are they in that context to me the they is those who have the access to the resources, the power, the education, and the infrastructure, and they have an overabundance of it. And it's not a process or a method or a pathway for Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities to access it and be able to achieve the uh, sustainable and regenerative communities that we all deserve and desire. And so when we think of when we think about it from that perspective and that lens, I think it becomes um, a personal, an opportunity for personal assessment of what access do we have and what overabundance of access do we have to resources, to power, to education and infrastructure that we should be, because we have that overabundance of access, we should be creating those pathways or offering those resources, offering the the financial resources or offering the power to communities that don't have that same access. And so the we in that sense typically looks like black indigenous and people of color communities that don't have the same kind of access to power, the same kind of access to the education. And so I believe from that framework and that language that we can really, where our work can start is by closing those gaps, closing those green gaps where they exist. When you can look at research that may tell you that Black children are more likely to, and this is pre-pandemic, but are more likely to miss school days because of asthma than white children, there is a problem with that. And so then we can have the conversation around that is a gap that exists. What are the policies that are in place and who's making the decisions about the policy and who has that access to power to determine where 
polluting facilities are situated in communities that are creating the higher asthma instances for BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities. How does it play out in what you actually do? Because I think of you as organizing vote, getting people to vote, but maybe that was because I was watching things that maybe they were recorded during an election cycle. But what is that? What is your, what do you, how does it play out in your day-to-day life or in your strategy? I would say voting is one dimension, right? That's one part of it. I think for me, where it resonates and plays out most personally is in the language piece and being culturally relevant in the way that we talk about our issues and the things that are impacting communities. And I think it's also primarily meeting the needs of the communities. I think back to that first experience in organizing that I mentioned to you, we, it was very extractive and we have to flip that dynamic where it's more of an investment of resources into a community and not what can you do for me? What can you sign for me? What can you do all these things without really understanding where people's needs are at the moment? So if I am working in community or if I'm working in a national capacity like I am with uh, Hip Hop Caucus, we understand that our communities are concerned about so many different issues and it's overwhelming at times. And so before I can engage you on climate and the facts and figures of climate I actually got to talk about something that's impacting you in your daily lived experience first. I got to talk, I got to speak to, I got to speak out on the issues that you are seeing and faced with, whether that be the death of George Floyd or Ahmaud Arbery at the hands of not only the people that did it themselves, but the system that allowed it to happen. So We've got to be a voice and a place where people can come and feel safe. And we're not only talking about the issues that we care about and it being climate only. It can't be climate only. And that's why I think that language of climate justice is important. Understanding climate is the condition of, it's the condition of our land, our air, our water, and our people. And being able to have the language that connects the dots between all of it. I hear you as a... I was going to say translator or ambassador. You Yes, translator uh, is it. That's one of the things that I like to speak. Like language is very important. And along my path and along my journey, I don't remember. I, I, I feel like I got it at a Surviving to Thriving Conference where either Mustafa Santiago Ali, former um, senior vice president of the EPA, or either Dr. Beverly Wright, between the two of them, One of the two talked about being translators and it just really resonated with me and getting, again, that language, like I very much feel like I embody that because I have that science background going back to that too. Like I can be a translator on many fronts, right? So I can have a conversation in a room of scientists and kind of understand what, for example, particulate matter and how that impacts us. But I can't go out to my community and talk about particulate matter. I can't have that conversation with my granny about particulate matter in the air because that isn't what we're talking about in our communities. What we can have a conversation about is the fact that 
people who judge when they go outside because of the heat in the day. Like it's too hot to go outside right now. So again, experience the symptoms by being in community and working with communities who are experiencing it from a symptom, experiencing the symptoms of a changing climate. I kind of exist in that intersection of being able to speak to it from the science and Mm -hmm. the lived experience of folks. I'm hearing that there's something even before that, which is understanding what their issues are. Because before you can translate into their language, you have to know their language. And maybe you have some similarities, but everyone's unique. That's why I paused before I said translator. I feel like it's there's something like, um, it's not a researcher, but a, a listener, I would guess, mm-hmm. that I, there's no one that I've, I don't think I've ever talked to anyone that when I talk about, if I just talk about the environment, they're like, yep, that speaks to me. It always... Everyone is like, that's abstract. That's something on the other side of the world. That's their problem. Oh, it's really, oh, you want to talk about litter? Even if they have litter in their neighborhood, they're like, it's really these rivers in Asia that cause most of it, or it's the fishing boats. Everyone's so quick to say, someone else, some other time, this isn't bothering me, even when it, it does, but they have to say it. If I say, if I, it's much more effective if they point out to me if I learn from them what their issues are and then speak about what they've said first, mm-hmm. maybe not first, but like that sometimes I prompt them. That's a whole set of skills of how to engage. And I would say make people feel comfortable sharing what matters to them so that I can connect with what matters to them. Mm-hmm. So that's why I didn't, when I said translator, I was, I feel like it's a translator and yet, and more than that. Did I read that right? Yeah, you you really did. And I think translator can go both ways too, right? So to translate, you do have to listen as well. So yes, listening and making sure that people feel heard. And I kind of pause there too, because that's something that I think I've had to deal with in life in general is being heard. So I I understand the perspective of someone that doesn't feel heard as well. And so, yeah, listening is a a key component and giving people space to tell their own story, to tell the, the things that are impacting them most, and then being able to understand if we think about it, we talk about foreign languages, right? So you got your French, your English, your German, like all these different languages that make up the world. But climate is in in and of itself a language of its own. Like not everybody is speaking climate. Not everybody is speaking science. And mm-hmm. so being able to have that knowledge and being able to utilize it as a tool. So like for that person that person in that community that I may be listening to inside of my work, it becomes my job as a translator to make sure that whatever tools that are mixed up in um, the language of climate and science, that they can become tools for that person in that community to really own their own solutions. And I'm curious how it's working out. Of the, I don't know if, it, do you say a BIPOC community or there's communities on one side and communities on the other side that you're translating between? Are they hearing the other's messages? Are they changing and reacting to listen and to listen more to the others and to speak in ways that the others can understand more? And if so, how's, what's changing? 
I don't think we're all the way there yet. I think it, I think there is more interest and willingness than where I started out. And maybe where I started out just wasn't like that fertile soil where that could really happen. But like over time and the more spaces that I find that are filled with people that look like me and spaces that are more diverse in general, like that's where I think I'm finding that to exist more. But are we all the way there? I think that's the practitioner side of it. I think that's the learning journey side of it. That will be like, we didn't get here overnight. That's going to be an ever evolving thing. And there's got to be a willingness and a desire to get to that as a goal. That's your passion, I take it. That's your, that you've got your work cut out for you and you're, you want to do it. I'm really clear when that climate justice, like when I think about areas in which I work and, and have a desire to work and operate, what comes to mind is climate justice, community, and tech advocacy. And it's interesting, like we're having a conversation around climate and the environment, and I bring in tech to the conversation. Tech, understanding that the tech industry isn't as diverse as it should be, considering the people that use technology is very diverse. Mm -hmm. And if we don't get more people that look differently inside of tech, And if we don't give communities the tools to be empowered, to learn tech and understand the tech that they need and create the tech that they need, we're going to be further away from that answer. So like my passion to your point, Joshua, is climate justice, because climate justice really did give me the language to reach all the way back to insurance and reach all the way back to biology like I think this one story that I think about I I was given an award a few years ago as a airkeeper North Carolina airkeeper award and part of receiving this award they do an annual breathe conference and at the breathe conference Like, it's really in my lane of science, right? All the science was there. It's very exciting. All the facts and figures you could have was there. And it was in that moment that I realized how all my backgrounds are coming together. I didn't realize at that moment around insurance. I'll tell you in a minute, like, where the insurance triggered for me. But in that conference where they're talking about particulate matter in the air and they're talking about all these facts and figures as a baseline around climate and the air that we're breathing. And I'm sitting there as someone who majored in biology, minored in chemistry and minored in African-American studies. And up until that point, I really hadn't seen how I was using that background in what I am doing at that moment as a climate justice organizer. But it was in that moment that I realized, wow, everything that I'm, I, everything that I went to school for, biology, chemistry, African-American studies, it comes together under climate justice. And what nailed, like what nailed it for me around all of my experiences, because I was still out there, like insurance was a separate life that I had. 
I attended a national adaptation forum Mm -hmm. and Denise Fairchild was speaking and she was talking about the national flood insurance program. And it kind of woke me up. Wait a minute. Like I haven't been in any spaces in all this time that I've been doing this environmental and climate work that had talked about insurance. And I'm like, that's it. I have the language now to connect between, because I had all this knowledge of having been in the insurance industry that you just don't, you don't lose or anything. But now I have that background to be able to talk about, yeah, we should be talking about climate and insurance together because insurance the way that our property and casualty is rated based on the risk factor. And if you're in a zone, like we would have moratoriums in in Florida or in California where we could not sell the insurance at all because of an impending wildfire in California or impending drought or in Florida with hurricanes coming. Like there would be times where, although I could sell insurance in these states, like our system would not allow us to sell insurance because of the moratoriums that the company just considered the places uninsurable. The, the payout would be too great. There's no way it could be profitable. Uh-huh. Correct. That was it. And we need to have those conversations because if a company for their profit, the benefit of their profit is deeming these communities as uninsurable, we need to be having that conversation of why are they uninsurable and what's creating the massive amounts of these impacts to the community, which we now, like for me, my language, like now I can speak to it as, oh, that's a change in climate that is causing that. That is our overuse and over-dependency on fossil fuels. And so what do we need to do differently? I'm wondering for you personally, you when you think of the environment or climate justice you were talking about some people, if you say particulate matter, you have to talk to them about their warm days. What do you think about when you think about the environment? What, what's your equivalent? Like not the particulate matter talk, but what do you think about? What images come to mind? <laughs> I, I laugh because it comes back to language for me. I was asked this question a while ago too. And like the first thing I love to do is go look up like what the actual definition of it is. Like what's the textbook definition for environment? And I think like when we think of environment, generally when you say the environment, most people, the first thing that they think of or the image that comes to mind is earth, is recycling, is all like green. They think of it in like the mainstream way of thinking environment. However, like we've always talked about, oh, the environment of that classroom or like we use it as a, I guess, a way to describe different things that have nothing to do necessarily or so we think with the earth as a whole, but we use environment in our everyday conversation. And so if you go and you look up environment and I don't have it in front of me, but from what I remember from looking up the um, textbook definition of environment, it is your surroundings and it can be weather related, but it doesn't always mean weather related when we talk about the environment. And so that's another like language piece that just brings it together to strengthen the understanding of how everything that we are doing, every lived experience that we have 
every every interest that we have, this is how it's connected. And so if we talk about the environment of hip hop culture, for instance, like the the environment, how do you feel in in hip hop spaces, right? It kind of then gives you a pathway to talk about the environment as we experience it connected in the form of weather-related experiences as well, or the earth as a whole. And one of the things that I meant to mention earlier too, when we were talking about the connection between the environmental movement and the social justice movement, like one of the things that's important is the most impacted people of both are Black and brown communities. And so we have to talk about them together because it's impacting the same community the most. When you were talking about the textbook definition, I thought you were about to say that that's a nice image set of imagery, but yours is different. But I, and what is yours? Because I, I thought you were going to say it and I didn't hear it, or maybe I missed it. I think it's in, embodied in that it's the expanded definition of environment, like the textbook definition or like what people first, like the first image that comes to mind around environment is the earth and green spaces and climate, like a a changing climate in general. That's like what I think mainstream. And what I'm saying is mine is more big and more broad than that. And understanding how everything is connected. That would be my definition, I think. Like if I I needed to sum it down, because I probably did give you a lot of words. I've been told that I'm verbose before. Um, Yes. (laughs) But I would nail it down to connectedness. We're all connected. And being able to see how we're connected, how our issues are connected and tied to each other. Environment being an ecosystem, that's the science coming in. Um, Environment in the sense of an ecosystem and how all of us are making up this ecosystem of our environment that we all are experiencing. And some people experience the uh, great parts of the ecosystem and clean air and access to everything that they need. And then they're far too many people that are experiencing the part of the ecosystem that does not have all of what it needs to survive and thrive. I'm curious though. I think a lot of people, when they think of the, of their ecosystem, of their environment, I think they tend to think of their experience was so normal that it feels like other people might get it. But some people like North Carolina, Maybe you're by the beach, but maybe you're up in the mountains or maybe you're in a city. And I don't know if what comes to mind, what's being affected? Um, I think of it as, I guess, like the way that I think about it is the land is the air is the water and the people. And I think that's maybe what I'm trying to say to like for so many other people, they think about the environment or that textbook definition. They think about it in the context of the impacts to the land, the impacts to the air, the impacts to the water. But too often people are left out of the conversation. And so when I think about environment, I'm thinking about the full picture of from the beach to the mountains and the foothills are the Piedmont, which is where I live. I think about it in the context of the air that we breathe in, indoors and outdoors, who has access to clean air. I think about it in the context of air in the sense of a Eric Garner who was killed at the hands of police and he was choked out, you know, so he couldn't breathe 
because he was being choked physically. But then he couldn't breathe the air also because his community had the worst air quality in in that particular region. And so I think about air from all those different lenses as well. I think about water from the water that we we take for granted that we have access to when we turn on our, our water faucet. But then also I think about it from like the aspect of not everybody's water is clean. Not everybody, like you might have water, but you may have contaminants. Like to, to your point, more of the Eastern North Carolina part where they're dealing with the pollutants in the water. I'm thinking I, I don't want to mispronounce the name, but it's like Gen Gen X, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, the I new PFOAs, the Forever Chemicals, the next generation mm-hmm, of those. The, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the Gen X and the Chemors. In that sense, I think about like all the aspects. Like I guess environment for me is so broad. It's not like a narrow. I can't fit it into one image. I can't fit it into one picture because I can look at it from the perspective of the land. I can look at it from the perspective of the air and the water and the perspective of the people. And then for me, I look at environment as centering the people in this conversation because we have a lot of ability to impact what happens to these other aspects of land, air, and water. It sounds like all the experiences of the environment that you talked about were other people's experiences as opposed to your own. Mm-hmm. which is what I'm, I'm getting at, which may be that there are some people I ask this question of what their experience of the environment is. And it's uh, occasionally it's very abstract and it's connection or it's a oneness or something. But oftentimes there's like a visual or there's an, a personal experience of often childhood experience or something that, you know, when they think of what's worth saving, there's something that, that for them is particular. And of course, no two people have the exact same experience. And yet, when people hear, when I hear someone else describe, say someone grew up in the mountains and I didn't, their description of that mountain that they grew up on, or say someone grew up picking apples from some apple orchard near where they grew up. I didn't grow up near an apple orchard. And yet there's something about it that when they really share their personal experience and, and the emotions and the sensory experience of it, it feels universal. But, and yet, even though it's unique for everyone, and I was curious for each person if there's a connection with that. Because I, I, if you saw my TEDx talk about the sledding hill, I talk about growing, growing up and there's a sledding hill near me. And I'm not saying that is entirely motivating me, that it's the only thing. But it's something that, it's something from my childhood that means a lot to me, especially because it doesn't snow, snow as much in Philadelphia where I grew up anymore. And I, I, I had a, a sled with rails, flexible flyer. They don't sell them anymore. There's not enough snow for it to be worth it for people to get it. And so they go down these like plastic things that they probably throw out at the end, a little more plastic. And not everyone has their sledding hill, not meaning a hill that they sled on, although it could be that, but something, I talked to this guy from Kazakhstan. He was the apple orchard guy. Apparently Kazakhstan is where the apple existed before humans discovered it. So when humans came to settle there 10,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, then that's where the apple is discovered. It's since moved all, all over the world, but there are some apple orchards there that are only there. Like the, the type of apple is only there. And he says, some of them are now housing developments that got paved over. Mm. And 
I look for that in people and, and what is there. It's not always there forever. Not, I mean, I had a guy on the podcast who grew up in Brooklyn and it was the soccer fields. That was his, that was the green space was the soccer fields. Mm-hmm. And then he went on to win an Nobel prize <laughs> uh, for ICANN. They, they helped abolish nuclear weapons or I'm sorry, mm-hmm. pass a treaty to, for that goal. Anyway, that's what I was kind of getting at. It, I think it exists for me, but I guess because I've gotten to a place of just seeing it so connected, like I don't, like that is a very personal picture that like, I'm happy to share. Like, that's not the issue, but I think my work is so connected beyond myself. It's connected to the community. And so I am sharing the community sense of that experience. But on a personal note, as you were speaking, I imagined and remembered, I should say, I remembered being a little girl growing up on the west side of Charlotte and in my grandparents' home. And we had a backyard and that was the hill that I I would go down and play on and everything. I can remember being a little girl and being in their driveway and laying down and looking up at the sky and seeing the cloud formations. I can remember as you were speaking, just all the experiences of being able to have that space, the tree in the front yard that would provide shade for us. I can remember being the little girl, and this is something that resonates for, I'm sure, um, I don't want to say all Black households, but I'm sure like a majority of Black households that you've heard that line, shut my door, you, you letting all my air out kind of thing. So just being mindful of just efficiencies and energy efficiencies. I'm reminded of my granny is someone who I learned recycling from. We did not throw away. Not, and I'm not talking about recycling that the um, city of Charlotte is going to come and pick up. I'm talking about recycling in home where the country crop container was used for more than just the storage of butter. That country crop container, we purchased it for butter maybe, but it also would be the container that we would put our leftover soup in or my favorite chicken noodle soup would go in there. So those are um, some of those personal memories that come up. And it's often said that, especially with that black and brown communities, they have been recycling. It just, it may not have looked what it looks like to mainstream society in that sense. And then one thing that, as you were speaking, that I'm reminded of, Actually, a couple more things that I'm reminded of being um, in my grandparents' neighborhood and the sounds of the train, like they were just always present. They were always there. But now knowing and existing where I am in the work, like what what are those trains actually carrying across our communities? And having gone into communities where I know that those trains were carrying asbestos. And so connecting that back to like where I was raised and grew up and like the train tracks were actually not only for us, what we uh, would face would be inconvenience in the sense of, Uh, it getting on the track and just staying there and you having to wait. So it was a nuisance in many ways. But then you think about it from having this, the perspective that I now have, having gone on my journey as a climate justice organizer, that it might not have been good stuff going across those train tracks either. Like what has it been carrying and carrying in between the Black community in which it was? And then I'm going to also speak to the smells. I find this very interesting too. I can remember like 
there would be days that you would go on uh, in certain areas like in, in the course of our I don't even know what we would necessarily be doing to be on this particular road but if I can remember clearly like five o'clock in the afternoons or rush hour times or lunch day, you would go over there and it was like this super heavy metallic smell. And in my childhood, you think that's normal or like going over to my aunt's house who like there's this entire concrete manufacturing plant. There was a heavy um, smell in that area. And like these toxic industries have settled in to become our neighbors. So when you were speaking, like, I think of those memories do come to mind for me. And they're not just memories. Like the concrete manufacturing plant is still next door to my aunt's house. The metallic smell that would be on this particular street in Charlotte, it still exists. However, I think they must have, there must have been some changes over time that have been put in place that it's not as heavy all the time when you go there. So those are some of the memories that kind of like we live with these things mm-hmm. and you think it's normal. And then I, I've begun my journey and doing the work and it's not normal. It's not normal for toxic industries to be neighbors to communities. That's just not normal. It's not fair. When Do I read right that the feelings that those memories of the toxic, the cement, the smells, they motivate you today. Is that part of your work? Is is part of what motivates you? I'd say it's very connected and it's not necessarily the thing that I, how do I want to say it? It's always with me. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Like, I don't, I didn't have to dig deeply for it because it was always with me, but I had to kind of dig in this sense of the conversation, to be able to talk about it within this context. Because to your point, especially coming from like mainstream environmental spaces, it doesn't always allow for the personal experience to talk about how the lived experience and what um, you're experiencing. That's why like the climate justice space, I think resonates with me so much because the stories that you get to hear from people Like it is a shared experience there. My experience though, I would say I connect with it. And I think that makes me go that much harder for other communities as well. Because many of these industries are a sense Goliaths of their industry, right? They're Goliaths. They they have the money, they have the power, they have the resources, they have all these things. And then they come in with the promise of jobs. They come in with the promise of supporting the, the youth athletic teams and the communities and whatnot. So communities are in a very difficult position of having to make a decision between like their livelihood and their ability to actually live. I think that is a fair assessment that it is something, it is one one aspect that makes me, that draws me in this work. If you don't mind asking, what, what emotions does it conjure up? Is it, I'm, I'm feeling, I don't know, helplessness or, or anger, but I'm not sure. It, am I reading that right? I think it's all the emotions, right? There's the level of being just like completely upset that 
it has been allowed to continue to happen. One thing that comes to mind, like there, like I've had experiences in my work where people, and by people, I mean white people, they talk about polluting industries from a perspective and toxic industries and industries that are are changing the climate. They talk about it from a perspective of not in my backyard. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, I saw a news report. Like, it's interesting because like I wanted to do something, but wait a minute, I got so much other stuff on my plate, but I really want to address this. So there was a news story about this older white gentleman who had retired and he retired to a rural part of, I think it was South Carolina. And a rock quarry is wanting to take up space and become his neighbor. And so it's making the local news and he's mad, he's fired up and all these different things. And he doesn't want that rock quarry to be his neighbor. Meanwhile, on the west side of Charlotte, there is a rock quarry that is neighbors to an entire community of black and brown people. And where is that same fight to say not at all? So while we have some people that will say not in my backyard, the larger fight should be not at all. Where is the safety for everyone? Where is the sustainability for everyone? Where is the thriving for everyone? And not just this one individual person in a rural community that has retired and said, this is where I thought I was going to have my forever home. The people on the west side of Charlotte in these Black communities want that to be their forever home. They didn't ask to be neighbors to a rock quarry that is blasting and um, transporting heavy trucks down the community and just the blasting and all the um, other things that come with being neighbors to a rock quarry. So I think there's a level of just my passions and my emotions probably are like in many different ways, depending on who we're talking to and who is directed at. So it's the city council and the county commission that is making the decisions on what gets approved and zoned for certain communities. And when you think about the cumulative impacts of a community, like we don't need another polluting industry in our community here. We want to benefit from the greening of the economy. Those who have been most impacted by our over of the fossil fuel industry and everyone's overuse of the fossil fuel industry. And those who have been most impacted by this industrial era and how do we restore those communities back to communities that can own their own solutions and communities that are sustainable and regenerative and how is there collective support for saying no or demanding change regarding these industries what would it be say it worked out and the rock quarry was filled in or whatever closed in whatever way they want what would be there instead i mean what this is what i was wondering about what your experience of nature because if it's not a rock quarry you don't want to put in like a chemical quarry or, you know, some equivalent you want what's there. What's your vision of what could be there? Presumably they would choose for themselves. And what's your expectation? What's better? What's good. 
What's good is one, the community is owning their own solution. It's going to be flat out because communities are closest to the issue and closest to the problem that they are going to most know what's going to be best for them. And so once the community has that power, that access to power, and they're making the decisions for themselves, and they're informed about the opportunities to influence and shape what happens, they're going to make the decision that is best for their community. But what's happening is decisions are being made too fast without the intentional input of community. And so I think about this often, how so much of our community is left out of the decision-making process just because decisions are made as if people don't have jobs and families and they're not conducive to bringing the whole family into those spaces. So I'll give like, it, it, it took the pandemic to be able to have our city council meetings and county commissioner meetings accessible in a virtual space where people could be able to access. But I still don't think that's enough. I think there has to be an intentional engagement. I think often about the 13 years that we spend in the public school system, some folks more, some folks less, but kindergarten through 12th grade, we spend 13 years and we're not equipped with the knowledge of how to be a part of community. Like it took me being a community organizer to understand how to be a part of community. Like we were taught to, this is my theory. We were all taught how to, or motivated to graduate. Like you go to school, high school and you graduate. When you graduate, you go to college. That was kind of my generation. They really pushed college. So you go to college, graduate college, get a, a good job. You get a good job, you get a family. And that's the American dream, right? But we're in that process of where we were taught these milestones in our life where we taught how to be a part of community, how to exist in community and where your, your voice is. And so I think that's one missing piece of the way in which we exist that people don't know how to be in community. I think there's this, there's some aspects like we know how to be in community relationship wise, but I'm also talking about from the perspective of like the policies and the decisions that are being made that are impacting our day-to-day lived experience. And yes, while the presidential election is important, our local races are so much more important because they are going to impact the everyday lived experience for ourselves and what we can touch, see, and feel. Sometimes the decisions that are happening from a presidential office seem so far away, like it's international, it's global. But when you can go to a city council meeting and you see within the time it takes to do a five-minute vote, they've made a vote to fund a $300,000 contract on the cleaning of a fountain. And so I think that community piece of what I shared with you, like how I define like myself and my passions, like community looks like community being engaged and having access to engage in that process in a meaningful way. Now I'm very engaged. And each time the past several times I'm thinking about saying, 
we're over time, but I keep wanting to learn more. And, and I'm curious, would you be willing to continue this conversation in a second episode? I would. I, I don't I would. know if you're, I'm very curious to keep hearing more, but I, I always have to keep the listeners in mind. I heard you say yes. It, did I read you right? Yes, I would be happy to. This, this has been like, yes, I'm here for your podcast, but you've given me a lot of uh, stuff to think about. You've given me an opportunity to speak and respond to the questions you asked. Like, it, it helps me to continue to strengthen the um, language that I have around these issues that I might be a better climate justice practitioner in my everyday work and what I will leave off this call to do. Like this has been strengthening for me. So with that being the case, I would love to come back for another episode. That's very gratifying and heartwarming to hear. And I know that if I say anything more than that, we'll go on for another half hour. So I propose <laughs> we pick up here next time, unless there's is there anything that you want to say directly to the listeners or that we won't just pick up on next time. Is there anything that I want to say? Yes. I think a couple of things. I just want to shout out Hip Hop Caucus and the Coolest Show podcast, which is coming back for season four in March. The Coolest Show has been defined by others as a masterclass on climate. So I'm sharing that with you to say that's part of that watering that I talked about before, like some of that watering of my seed, of my understanding and framing. So if you're looking for a place to start to learn more about how, how you can deepen your language yourself and deepen your work and your commitment and your actions to climate justice, Definitely want to shout out Hip Hop Caucus and The Coolest Show Podcast, which you can find on um, all podcast outlets or by visiting hiphopcaucus.org. And on that website, you can find my episode there, but we do have a petrochemical series that we just recently um, released. And that would be a, a fantastic place to start to hear from communities who are living with the impacts of the petrochemical industry, which we know as plastics and is everywhere. And the thing that like plastics are like petrochemicals, it's in everything. And by and listening to those episodes, because it's in everything, everybody's not experiencing the impact of how plastics are created, but it's being compounded in three regions specifically, Cancer Alley in Louisiana and Houston, Texas and Texas in general. And then in the Ohio River Valley area, there is on the table expansion of petrochemical facilities. And these communities, Louisiana and Cancer Alley and Houston, Texas, our black and brown communities. And so I definitely would encourage you to listen to that one. Like you said, there are a lot of series. You can dig deeper into the transportation series that we have out there, especially in the mix of this pandemic and the transportation 
um, and supply chain challenges that we're all having, transportation justice should be definitely a part of that conversation. So I encourage those two series. And then from there, you're probably going to go deeper and then listen to all the episodes. One of my favorite ones. Oh, wait, before um, you do that, I'm going to, I'm going to pause because we're going to keep going and I want to. I really wanted to say this favorite one, though. Can I say this favorite one? Okay. One of my favorite ones was, and I don't know if it was a series, but we did interviews of Grist 50 Fixers. And you being one of them. That just, I wound up being one of them at the time, but I wasn't one when I listened to this series. And it took me down a rabbit hole of wanting to know every one of the um, Grist 50 Fixers that were interviewed. So I'll stop there because I'll keep going. Well, Nikisha Glover, thank you very much. And I'll talk to you again soon. Okay, thank you, Joshua. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodek.com slash donate.